The following program is sponsored by Grant Stern. This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we're in studio live tonight. We've got a great show that you have to tune into and stay on the whole drive home. We've got Democratic candidate for Congress, Jose Javier Rodriguez. He's a Florida state senator and running for the District 27 Democratic nomination, which covers the east side of Miami, Coconut Grove, uh, Brickell, Miami Beach, Pinecrest, South Miami, Coral Gables. Uh, and it is a very important race. There are quite a few candidates in the race, and we have interviewed all of the major candidates on this program now that JJR has arrived, except for the newest entrant in the race. And we will get to her in just a moment. But later in the program, we are going to have the founder and director of the O. Henry Poetry Festival, which is going on all month long in the city of Miami. I'm sorry, the O. Miami Poetry Festival. The O. Henry link is good there. Uh, His name is Scott Cunningham, and he's going to join us live on the program tonight at the back half of the hour because we are going to bring in some of his guests, the folks that are running the O. Miami Poetry Festival, which you can find out more about at omiami.org. We're going to bring them in throughout the month of April So this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond. And tonight, I wanted to once again speak about the District 27 congressional race to extend an invitation. On this program, we have had politicians and candidates of both political parties We've had Democrats, we have had Republicans, we have had those sitting in the seats, we have had those uh, folks who are, are running for the seats, we have had community leaders, we have had mayors, city councilmen, uh, we have had congresspeople, we have had senators, well, former senators anyway. Uh, you know, we've really had a wide variety of political guests come through the doors of the Only in Miami show. And tell us what's going on in Tallahassee, what's going on in D.C., what's going on in City Hall, and what's going on in County Hall. And I've always kept an open door, even if I disagree with the political views of these guests. And that's why I'd like to extend an invitation to Democratic congressional candidate Donna Shalala to appear on the Only in Miami show in the first two weeks of April either April 9th or April 16th. I've extended some invitations to her folks, but I'm extending it on the air directly to Donna Shalala right now because it's important to hear the answers to the questions that voters want to know about. Donna Shalala has a long track record as the president of the University of Miami, 
as a former Secretary of, of Health and Human Services, as a former director for the public corporation Lennar, and as the former director of the Clinton Foundation, Donna Shalala needs to answer the questions that her constituents have. And I'm perfectly happy to bring up all of the questions that people have about her record, about her positions, about her donations to Republicans, and let her have an unfiltered voice, an unfiltered moment to speak with our listeners on the Only in Miami show, you guys, who need to make a decision based on the facts. And I would really appreciate if Donna Shalala comes out here to sit down with me for an interview, just like everybody else in the district that has been invited. Michael Hepburn has come onto the program. We have had David Richardson. We have had Mary Barzi Flores and Ken Russell and Matt Hagman. And tonight we'll have Jose Javier Rodriguez. And once this is all done, I'm going to put together a primary guide with all of the episodes. So you can listen to all of the candidates in this race and decide who should be the next Democratic nominee for Congress in District 27 and who should be your next congressperson from District 27. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, culture, politics, and more. Check out our stream at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Jose Javier Rodriguez. He's a Florida state senator and running for the Democratic nomination in Florida's 27th congressional district. Jose Javier, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Grant, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for your show. I know you cover a lot of local topics that mean a lot to us, and oftentimes not not everybody's covering these topics the way you do, so thanks. No, I, I, listen, it's my pleasure because there's so many things going on in Miami that are simply not getting the coverage that they deserve, and there's a lot going on. 
So where do we begin? Amen. So uh, I'll tell you about my candidacy. How about that? How about that? So uh, to uh, you know, so I, I have the pleasure of serving right now in the state senate, but I'll tell you a little bit about why it is so important. We have a huge opportunity in this district to change the nature of our congressional representation uh, in November. So I'm a candidate for the congressional seat. Ross Layton is vacating at the end of this year, she's, which she's held for almost three decades. Yeah, the, the seat has been held by the Republican uh, representative for th- nearly 30 years. She lives in Pinecrest. And she's done that by moving steadily further to the left over the years. On certain topics. On certain topics. Not, uh, not when it comes to things like guns or taxes taxes or Russia. Correct. Uh, pretty pretty bad uh, performance there. So, uh, I mean... Tell our audience a little bit about what inspired you to make the leap from state Senate to the the Congress. Yeah. So I haven't made the leap. I'm asking voters well, for their support to make that trying leap. Trying to make that leap. That's right. So um, so I grew up here in Miami, uh, elementary, middle, high school, uh, Cuban-American. I served in the Peace Corps in West Africa as a business advising volunteer. After that, uh, I earned a Harvard Law degree and came back home. The intention was to come back home and do community-based work, which is what we did. So I worked as a legal aid lawyer for five and a half years. It was, you know, the, the type of work that we were doing is we, we eventually founded uh, an organization, which is a standalone organization right now. And the, our mission was to support community organizing. So we, you know, basically legal work in support of different organizing efforts, workers' rights, immigrant rights, uh, racial justice. And I was also very involved in the Cuban-American Democratic Club. And my candidacy for office really kind of came out of the work that we were doing, which is, you know, becoming more successful. And I was recruited by the Cuban-American Democratic Club to run for a pickup, what became a pickup seat for Democrats in the statehouse. Uh, Back then, that was 2012. And the Senate seat that I serve in right now is also a pickup seat. So both cases in this exact same area uh, turned a, a seat that was red. To, to the to the Democratic call, and so so you've been there before, right? So the only candidate in the primary who has had a tough general election, much less won the toughest in the state, uh, and twice in a row, pretty much. Now, in twenty fourteen was razor razor thin. Correct. Right? Yes, that's right. Um, so our yeah our reelect was very tough because it was uh, you know Democratic turnout was through the floor, so uh, it was very massive grassroots effort. All every single race that we've been in in this area. But I think in terms of, so, so with that trajectory and with that service, so what, what is it that, why is it that I'm seeking to serve in, in Congress, the same constituents? And honestly, it's because the work we've been doing in Tallahassee, uh, you know, fighting pitched battles, on a lot of issues, moving the needle on some, um, you know, you know, knocking our heads against the wall and, and, and building toward eventual change on others. All that work is just as important, if not more important, at this extremely critical moment uh, right now in Congress. And so as we were thinking about through, you know, could, could we do this? Should we do this with, with my family, uh, my wife Sonia and I? Uh, the answer was absolutely yes. We have to continue doing this work. We have to make sure that this, this district flips to the blue column and continue doing this work. So, for example an issue as existential and important to us as sea level rise and climate change, which doing virtually nothing in Tallahassee and anything we were doing has been basically stopped and blocked and we've been you know, going backwards in Congress. That is an absolute entry-level issue 
Uh, I've you know, been working really hard on those issues at the state level, and I want to continue doing that. When we talk about access to affordable health care, that has been battle number one as Democrats. I'm, I'm in Democratic leadership in the state Senate. I want to absolutely continue want to, first of all, protect the gains of, of the Affordable Care Act and just expand where we, you know, access to, to health care. Sure, sure. I mean, there's a lot of plans that are being floated to yeah. extend Medicare and do all sorts of things that will cover more people. Mm-hmm. And and the plan that makes the most sense is Medicare for All. I mean, that, that's just something that's easy for people to grasp their heads around. And, and I think— Well, Medicare for All, you know, when you're talking about Medicare for All, the expense rate of Medicare is very, very low. You know, like what people pay that goes towards administration— Whereas with private insurance, the expense rate is very high. It's capped at 20% because of Obamacare. Before that, it used to be 40% of the cost. So the money wasn't going to your doctor. It was going to bureaucrats, private bureaucrats. Right. And so it's a program that we know, we trust, and it's a good place to start from. And I think two other issues that I'll hit on real quick in terms of you know work that we've been doing that we, we need to continue doing at, 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 at the federal level is gun control, right? I mean, that has been— Well, gun reform. I mean, there's— oh, yeah. You know, that's a national movement, but it's hit a complete brick wall in Congress. And it's ironic that it's hit a brick wall in Congress, but we saw some activity in Florida. Yeah, we could could talk a little bit more about that. I think that the the let's make no mistake. I mean, the, the the little progress that was made was because we fought like heck. And we had a huge asset, which were tens of thousands of very motivated students fighting for us. Um, It is so tragic that it took yet another massacre, uh, this time close to home, for us to be able to get the, those things done. Uh, and the, the students, uh, the, the teachers and parents that were supporting them deserve all the credit for the uh, changes that, that came, came about in the state, uh, at the state level. They did not go nearly far enough, and they include arming teachers. Yes, that well, sounds insane. Arming yes. lunch ladies, cafeteria workers. And the teachers. wrestling coach, the janitor, the bus driver. And classroom teachers. And classroom teachers, as long as they're not a hundred percent teacher, right? Well, there's well, we could go into that, but but one of the things that um that Republicans tried in the Senate was to In the uh, State Senate. In the State yeah. Senate, yeah. So this is this, you know, very large uh proposal that came out of the state legislative session, which just concluded that deals with a whole range of topics after Parkland, right? Frankly, right. it should have been, you know, a lot of these topics were after Pulse, after all the shootings, but this was just the one where Republicans finally decided they were going to take our proposals and, and, and we were negotiating. And do something. Yeah, yeah so uh, funding for mental health, for school safety, a couple of it, small changes to make it harder for those under 21 to get weapons, banning bump stocks. But as you mentioned, also, this proposal includes a program to arm teachers. And there was a point when they, they said, well, what if it's not classroom teachers? Well, uh, myself and one of my colleagues spent, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes picking the amendment apart to show there were so many loopholes in it that effectively the amendment did nothing. And they're still arming teachers to the point where they quickly dropped the idea that they were not they were that they were going to pretend to not arm teachers because the language perfectly allows school districts, you know, to arm teachers. And so, again, those are issues we need to keep the fight on and correcting that, you know, because if we hadn't done that work, they would be campaigning around the state saying, hey, we're not arming teachers, we're just arming librarians, which is completely insane. But it's also no, not true, and they can't claim it because we set the record straight. Well, let's talk about one of the successes that I feel isn't getting enough attention from the gun bill and something that 
maybe could be brought to Congress. And that's the red flags law that was enacted, which is letting people go to the courts and ask for someone's firearms to be taken away if they're dangerous or unstable. And it's funny because I, I see the Politico playbook every morning by Mark Caputo. And he, you know, he's like keeping a running tally on how many guns have been taken away. So far, nine guns in Broward County have been taken away where the Parkland shooting happened. That's nine potential mass murders that have been averted. But there are people that are going to say, oh, my gosh, there's nine guns taken away in a county of about two million people. That's a problem. But is that something that you think needs to be brought to Congress? Sure. Uh, so like as a federal, I mean, there's again, a state level yeah. one, but it's like it doesn't exist in every state right now. That's right. So one of the very few positive things that came out of session, I'll put it in some context too, because it's not in you know 100 uh, percent that 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 the NRA didn't get some wins out of this. They got law, a lot of wins. They got but, a lot of wins. But out. The, but this is one of their losses, I would say. That it's one of their losses, but one of them their losses that 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 they're more willing to take because their their whole angle on this is to try to say that these mass uh, murders uh, are only uh, done by people with mental health problems. So the NRA is willing to uh, basically help stigmatize the mentally ill and say, yes, go take their guns. But uh, Have but, they seen Ted Nugent? I mean, seriously. Right. He doesn't seem like he's in a good place. So, <laughs> I mean, what's that? You know, how are they making that point there? But go on. No, but so so you're talking about a, the, so there's a, a process that, that we created called the a risk protection order, right? Which right. which which enhances law enforcement's ability to go in and and basically take away somebody's guns if they're a threat to themselves or, or somebody else. Uh, and that's something, frankly, that law enforcement has wanted for a while. NRA has blocked them, uh, and that is one of the positive things that we've got out of this. And it's it it you know to be honest with you. Nine is not a lot, but it's not a long time since this legislation was signed into law. That's a positive thing. It's a great start. Yeah. And because once law enforcement and the state attorneys are able to get, you know, get this to function, right, our hope is to be able to expand that so that, uh, so, so that it actually works. But again, it's a positive thing, and we should have been doing this for a long time. I think the danger is, again, a big part the reason why we have some, some not not just with these massacres, but with daily violence, a big part is the availability of weapons. Um, and so, I, you know, I had the honor during session to be the first person to push for an assault weapons ban. The first vote we had is hours and hours of, of, of hearings and testimony on just that one amendment to try to ban assault weapons. Hundreds of people came up from Miami. Uh, we lost by one vote. Uh, it was close. That is uh, very close. Yeah. So that's another reason, again, you know, why we need to uh, to continue pounding away on on uh, not not just uh, wins like that, but also uh, why we need a strong representation in Congress. So Jose Javier Rodriguez, tell our audience where they can take this conversation onto the internet after the program. They can reach out on Twitter, for example. Jose Javier JJR, uh, they can use the same uh, on Facebook. Uh, we, uh, find me on Facebook, Jose Javier Rodriguez on Facebook uh, for Congress. And your website? JJR2018.com. Alrighty. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. 
speak up on and hang with a clown And I'm thinking that it's just what I found Thought it she could just put on a show Can't put the money where the mouth is Cause the head's in the ground Is the one that they just can't see What a friendship could truly be Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show. And I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Jose Javier Rodriguez. JJR is a Florida state senator and running for the Democratic nomination in Florida's 27th congressional district covering the east side of Miami and Miami Beach. Jose Javier, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, shining a light on so many issues that affect us here. So uh, let's talk about some of the fundraising issues in the campaign, because I've asked all the candidates what they're doing to fundraise, how all that's going. And a little birdie in a tree told me that the deadline was this past weekend. So uh, what is your primary method of financing the campaign? Because campaigns are expensive. They need to be paid for. But it, it comes up in every campaign. Yeah, so uh, I appreciate your asking the question. And, you know, I think a lot of what in terms of bringing to light what's happening on fundraising, a lot of people could do their research themselves, too, on FEC, Open Secrets. Oh, sure. So if there's a particular donor somebody's concerned about, you should definitely go online and check it out. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some of your opponents donating to your other opponents or even to other Republicans running uh, yeah, for this seat. That's, that's right. pretty crazy. That's, right. I mean, that's all stuff online. You there. can go and check it out. So our, 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 we have been running just very traditional campaign in the sense of just calling supporters in the district, um, you know, hosting fundraisers. Uh, Commissioner uh, Daniel Levine Cava recently hosted a fundraiser for us last week. Um, and, you know, we, we're, we're out there just trying to fund our budget because, you know, it's not just about, you know, having a big number. We, you know, we're, we're going to be out there knocking on doors, doing, you know, all kinds of things, maybe radio ads and that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so we're trying to fund our budget. And I think one thing that people might notice is that in terms of donations from organized labor, there's no other Democratic candidate receiving them. And partly it's because I've been a solidly pro-worker uh, professional. I mean, even just before I was elected. I mean, you know, a lot of the community organizing that, that, that we were supporting was actually labor uh, organizing. And, we, you know, we helped uh, 
you know, the, the, the wage theft ordinance that we have here in Miami-Dade, um, worked with a coalition of labor and immigrant rights groups to draft that and get that passed, other things like that. So that, That's a great local ordinance. And if you're a listener out there, I think it's up to $350. You go to the county and they can enforce uh, wa- the wage theft ordinance. You don't have to go to court. Correct. Which the is whole, a big deal. Yeah. The, the, and and it, it's worked really well. And, you know, uh, you know, a lot of props to Miami-Dade County. You know, the whole idea, because this was at the, at, you know, during the recession and the whole issue of wage theft, you know, you work and you don't get paid. It's rampant everywhere. Uh, federal enforcement oh, yeah. is, is, is just not there. Uh, Republicans got rid of the State Department of Labor a long time ago. And so where do people go if they can't, you know, if can't if, if the claim isn't big enough to c- convince a lawyer to, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole idea is it's a self-enforcement mechanism. You can go down to the county, um, you know. There's and the the idea is is you just prove up your own claim, and it's it's been really successful. Millions of dollars have changed hands uh, where they wouldn't have otherwise. So we're really proud of that. Is is that something that needs to be enacted on the federal level as well? Well, at the federal level, yeah, the federal Department of Labor. And yeah, I think yeah. That, I mean, you, could, you know, there's a lot more teeth when the feds come in and enforce things. But. Oh yeah, no. And if you just look at going back in time, you know, the if 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 they're given if the political will is there and the dollars are there to enforce, you look at really great results. I mean, they, they, their mission goes from everything from child labor to minimum wage and overtime. And there are so many rampant areas where violations are taking place. And you see if the Department of Labor makes a focus on something, they make a huge dent. Um, you know, and, and so they're severely underfunded. And so absolutely at the federal level, I mean, it, it's, it's a no brainer. We know what we need to do, but it just hasn't, hasn't been done. And raising, raising the minimum wage, which has been a big fight as well. Yeah, no, I mean, that is a whole other fight. Um, but let's bring up the 800 pound orange gorilla in the room that we haven't spoken about yet. The T word, the T word. Yes. I think we could just call it that. Um, you know, one of the big questions that's going to face the next Congress Unless Republicans in this Congress spontaneously grow backbones, which uh, let's just say the few who have grown backbones or shown backbones have pretty much decided they're leaving. Um, I think that's it's it's the most unusual thing I think we've ever seen politically in our lifetimes to see, you know, something like uh, almost 10 percent of the the House is leaving the House or has left because there have been some. Sudden resignations um, from one party in one calendar year. But if you're sent to Washington, D.C. and in Congress, do you believe that Congress already has enough evidence to impeach the president based on his violations of the Emoluments Clause, based on the rampant violations of the First Amendment, which we've seen in the last few days where he's attacking the Washington Post and praising Sinclair, which is an obvious content-based preference that he's expressing, but he's, you know, looking to regulate CNN, but give Sinclair, uh, you know, almost a national monopoly on local television. So, I mean, do you think that we already have enough evidence based on the foreign payments that Congress has? He's not he hasn't asked permission for. Or do you think that we're just going to have to wait and see what special counsel Mueller finds? I am. If I were elected, if by our district, I would be absolutely prepared on day one to vote for impeachment. Absolutely prepared. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, you've you've. You've just you, you you yourself lay out a pretty strong case. I mean, you think 
uh, even during you the, give me more time. I keep laying out. The oh, case, I know, but, I know, I know. But but I, so what I'll whittle it down to is, you know, I think it, you'd have to look pretty far back in history, if ever, to find a president who is more clearly an agent of a foreign government. That is a very, very strong claim to make. But it is frightening uh, the amount of leverage that Rus- the you know Russian government and their allies and others in in other unfriendly countries. Uh, the leverage they have over uh, the president uh, himself through his organizations, through his his son-in-law and children, it, it is frightening. And I think the other thing, too, is I, I don't know how far back in history we'll have to go to find a president that's more blatantly uh, profiting off of office. You know, from the from the you know what what I guess now counts as the small stuff, like literally using the White House website early on to try to sell merchandise. Oh, that was a good to, one. To, to everything else, I mean, it, it's just well, well not just it, that, but there's a domestic emoluments clause, which is all about accepting payments outside of the salary of the president, and it, you know it's gross because the pre- Donald Trump is saying, well, I'm going to donate things, but I'm going to donate my salary, but he's getting paid a lot more than that each year. Because of his visits to Mar-a-Lago, his visits to all of his golf properties. I mean, he's really cashing in. So so I think one of the things that is so troubling about Trump and Trump's supporters and collaborators is that, you know, they're, they're, Trump has a distinct and very offensive ideology, right? Sure. But, but beyond that, I mean, it, they, they don't really even seem to care about the country. I mean, they don't seem like they want to govern. I mean, it's just been this revolving door of embarrassment. I don't care what your party or ideology are. I mean, this is just not the way uh, the, the, the biggest, strongest democracy the world has ever known should behave. And so I think that, uh, you know, uh, but, but again, when, when it comes to impeachment, we're taking all that into context and looking, you know, are there high crimes and misdemeanors and who decides that? It's, it's, it's the majority of the U.S. House of Representatives decides if there's an impeachable offense. There's plenty there. Uh, I have been very, very strong in support of Mueller's investigation because I think, you know, we, we all watch the, you know, or we don't all watch it. Some of us maybe. A few of us watch the, it. But like the cable all news. All of our or, in, in brilliant listeners yeah. watch. Our, all our listeners, if you're listening to this show, you're clearly following very closely the, you know, the, the newspaper and the cable news. In terms of the, the, the weekly uh, drip of information that comes out on, on just how bad it is. And in terms of what is the impeachable offense, I mean, you mentioned the Monuments Clause or several things that you could easily tie to right now where we have enough evidence. But Mueller's scope, thank God, is beyond just what you can convince a majority of, of the U.S. House of. Uh, and, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. Well, here's another big question that Congress is going to take up next year. Um, and, and I think that it's legitimate to take it up next year because they're still investigating, especially in the Senate Intel Committee which has a different structure actually than the House Intel Committee, um, where the Senate Intelligence Committee has a chairman and a vice chairman. Uh, the House Intelligence Committee has a ranking member who's basically, you know, he's, he's the mushroom that you keep under the pile of dung and keep him in the dark. And then you have a chairperson who has all the authority and power in the world. Um, but once that Senate panel is done investigating the social media companies, what do you think is coming down the pipeline. And if you were elected, what would you be prepared to do about some of the issues that have come up just recently with Cambridge Analytica and manipulation, the 
the use of private data for, you know, this kind of targeting, you know, what do you think needs to be done in D.C. to rein in the Wild West of Americans' data being bought, sold, and leaked freely? Well, first of all, this investigation needs to be full. Um, and there are just more, the Mueller investigation. More, yeah, Mueller investigation. I mean, this is an important part of the Mueller investigation. I would say the most important. Part, yeah, no, but. absolutely, because I think we need to get to the bottom of what happened. But we don't need to wait uh, to take action in Congress uh, to try to perfect, protect us, but also protect our democracy. I mean, I think that some of this is new territory, but some of this, frankly, uh, has been by efforts of, of certain big corporations to try to uh, obstruct and delay uh, and hide what has been going on and for quite some time. Oh, yeah. We're only just learning about it. Uh, so I think that... Well, uh, well, people all thought it was just very benign. They said, well, who cares if a bunch of advertisers have my private information? Well, Maybe they're trying to figure out what I want. Who thinks that's benign, right? When it's not with, when it's apparently not with your consent. Uh, that is a serious problem. And, and I think that, you know, it, it, it is an area where, you know, I have a very, very strong record on consumer protection. A lot of the things that we have fought for uh, in Tallahassee to protect consumers as individuals uh, also have the same flavor of protecting our democracy, right? Because when people, you know, frankly should know where their information is coming from and if they sign up for a website and believe that their information is going to be kept private, there should be a pretty severe penalty if that doesn't happen. Well, you know, people think that Facebook is helping them manage their privacy, but that's really just the privacy of a post, not the privacy of your information, like, you know, your contact lists. You know, people that have been deleting Facebook and asking for their information uh, suddenly discovered that when you hand over your entire contact list to Facebook, they keep that. Yeah. Well, great. You and I are recent fathers of uh, very young kids. Uh, and I think that when we came of age, all this stuff was relatively new. Oh, and yeah. so you actually thought about this stuff. Hey, when I post this, who's going to see it? So one of the things, too, is that we did not grow up in a culture where it's perfectly normal to post everything uh, from, you know, from middle school uh, on. And so I think that, you know, one of the problems we had with, for example, the gun debate is that so many legislators are so old and, and disconnected from uh, from things that that they, they just didn't bother to ask these students, where are you at? What are you thinking? You know, what's this like for you? Uh, and, you know, so I think that, with, you know, having young kids, you know, I think about this stuff a lot. I mean, you know, when, when they're growing up, you know, the, 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 a lot of the decisions they're going to be making is before, you know, before anybody even, you know, tells them about these privacy settings, right? Oh, yeah. Of course, I'm going to be very much on top of them because that's just how <laughs> I am as a parent, right? But, but, but not everybody, not every kid has that advantage of having somebody who's really on top of them and protecting them um, and so I think that, that, that you know, if nothing else, uh, protecting minors especially um, and having many more safeguards uh, for, for, for their privacy more than anybody else's, I, I think is something, something that we should put a priority on. Well, speaking of kids, I know you have to get running, but <laughs> can you tell our audience in one minute why they should select you in the Democratic primary for Florida's 27th congressional district. I can tell them in two words, Jose Javier Rodriguez, and those two words are proven progressive. Proven uh, not just because of my strong track record fighting for us on exactly these same issues in very difficult environment, which is the state legislature, which is, which is great training, but also proof uh, that I will fight special interests to the death, whether it's Big Sugar, FPL, um, but the other, the other part of proven is proven electorally. Uh, there's not that many, if any, 
people who are in competitive seats where Republicans can take you out that will go after FPL, that will go after Big Sugar. So you can you can believe uh, that I'll continue that. And progressive, just my record, uh, my record before I was in office uh, has continued while I've been in office just fighting for our progressive values. So that's what I ask you to do. Do your research. Uh, reach out to me. Uh, and thank you for listening. And where can they reach out after the program to take this conversation onto the internet? Uh, they can go to JJR2018.com. They can go to Jose Javier JJR, which is my Twitter handle. So at Twitter, uh, at Jose Javier JJR, right? And the website? JJR2018.com. Well, Jose Javier, thank you so much for joining me on the program again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlymiamiradio.com. News, politics, culture, and more. Check it out at onlymiamiradio.com. 
And we are back live with Scott Cunningham, the founder and director of the O Miami Poetry Festival, and Amanda Valdespino. She's the creator of Check Out a Poet. Guys, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. So, Scott, tell our audience a little bit about the O Miami Poetry Festival, which is going on all month, the month of April, and they can find out a lot at omiami.org, right? Correct. So the festival was founded in 2011 uh, with the Knight Foundation with the goal of every single person in Miami-Dade County encountering a poem during the month of April. So it's basically a traditional festival, but turned completely inside out. Instead of trying to get everybody to come to one place, uh, we try and take the festival to you. Okay, so I mean, you guys have a lot of events going on, right? We do, yeah, but about 38, 40 events in 30 days. And then on top only? of that, only, yeah, <laughs> only, <laughs> only. And then on top of that, a number of initiatives and projects that uh, are trying to put poetry in the public space uh, in collaboration with a lot of different organizations and individuals. So tell me about a couple of those organizations and individuals, and we will ask Amanda about her project. <laughs> sure, next. absolutely. Uh, so one of them that I'm really excited about because I'm a native South Floridian is um, we're working with Flanagan's this year, uh, cool. everybody's favorite seafood bar and grill. So if you've been there, you know they have these Trivial Pursuit cards by the table. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so we made new Trivial Pursuit cards for them that are uh, have questions that are either based in Miami or in literature and both. Okay, so I'm going to quiz you. Which municipality in Miami is known as the City of Progress? And that would be Hialeah. You got it. You got it. <laughs> Amanda, can you take one? Um, sure. Okay. Okay. Ready? Uh, which James Joyce novel is a dream sequence about Winget Wednesday? I should know this. Is it Ulysses? No, you really shouldn't. No, it's not Ulysses. Oh, it's man. Flanagan's Wake. <laughs> so, there's, so there's obviously some that are meant yeah, to be great. fun and not necessarily accurate. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's cool though. That's really cool. Yeah. What else you got? What else you got? So yeah, so we're uh, we're also um, we accept proposals every fall for ideas. You know, we say to the public. What's a way that we could spread poetry in Miami? And so the public submits ideas to us. So one of the guys who submitted an idea was this guy, Evan. And he had this idea that he wanted people to read the poetry of Anne Sexton. And so he's asking people to record themselves reading uh, an Anne Sexton poem. And then at the same time, make a donation to Lotus House Women's Shelter. Because of Anne's work, and a lot of it is um, about motherhood and, and femininity and, and uh, a lot of issues that Evan feels like don't get enough attention. So he wants you to read the poem to get, uh, I guess, get accustomed to Anne Sexton's work, but then also donate to a women's shelter. Okay, I'll try a little bit of that. I'm going to read a very short one. It's about the Miami Dolphins. It's called The Sun. I have heard of fish coming up for the sun who stayed forever. <laughs> snap, snap, snap of the poetry world, yeah. So Amanda, tell our audience about Check Out the Poet. That's your project. So it's one of the many things that we're collaborating with Oh Miami, the Miami-Dade Public Library System. So uh, Check Out a Poet is basically um, inspired by the human library experience where you can check out a person and hear about their experience, but we're doing it poetry style. So it's going to be offered at several branch locations as well as a bookmobile stop and two of our Technobus stops where you'll be able to check out a poet for 15 minutes. Uh, you can hear their work or you can also ask them questions and 
you know, what's it like being a poet? What advice do you have? Do you like pineapple on pizza? Anything's for game, so. <laughs> Broad latitude. If you need tax advice, just check yeah, out a poet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really cool. So uh, where, where can our listeners find out more about Check Out Our Poet if they want to actually go to a Miami-Dade County library and uh, take one home with you? Right. So they could visit um, any of our 50 branches in person to learn more, or they could always go on our website, mdpls.org, so they could see the list of all the participating branches. Well, you've got a lot of material there. What, what is I all do. this? I share. So do. Do share. Of, <laughs> so one of them is actually a bookmark that we also collaborated with Oh Miami, and it's for their, uh, their Sunroom Education Program. So we featured one, a poetry excerpt, from one of the students and we have that going on at all 50 of our branches and we also have a art exhibit that's going on with some more of the uh, students work and that will be going on at main library so yeah we're collaborating a lot with oh miami which is really exciting for the library system no it's great i mean uh, i'm gonna actually tweet out a picture of the the bookmark great because it's really cool it's it's a it's like a, a ocean and then you see the sun going down, and it's got a poem about that, and it's just fantastic. I'm not going to tell our listening audience. You're going to have to go on Twitter, at Grant Stern, yeah. <laughs> and, and you can check this out, this bookmark. And, and can people get this at the library th- yeah. this month? This yeah. one, or there, is there a series? So this is the, the one, this design is the only design that's bookmark-wise. So that will be available at all 50 of our branches and also at some outreach events. Uh, and then the exhibit, which has more of the po- of the students' works, will be available at uh, Main Library on exhibit. So what, what are those orange cards? So this is of part of Check Out a Poet. So do you remember those days where um, you used to have in the back of a card, you would write, they would write your name down and when the date was due for the book? Well, we decided to do it for Check Out a Poet. Really? So Yeah, so patrons get to take a card and each poet can sign off on it and write a little comment. And at the end, uh, the patrons get to keep it as kind of like a you know, token to keep for the National Poetry Month and check out a poet. So, so that that begs the obvious question. If we keep the poets too long, does that mean it's like 25 cents a day? Uh, we'll have to work That's a great out. Question. <laughs> we'll have to work out the details. <laughs> we we recommend you don't take them home. It's it's a lot okay. of work, but <laughs> Yeah, I'm yeah. just I'm thinking of my my friend uh, Benny who ran the the poetry night at, at Churchill's for many years and uh you know, I'm not sure if you would want to take him home at that price. I mean, really? No, I'm just kidding. No, they're really cute. You guys have like the greatest uh, collateral, as they call it, ever. It's just, you know, fun stuff. Thanks a lot. Yeah. yeah so, uh, Scott, tell our audience, uh, what inspired you to found the Old Miami Poetry Festival back in 2011 and to bring poetry to, what, 38 uh, events in yeah, 40 so nights? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was really inspired by Miami itself. Um, I, I had been organizing things kind of on a grassroots level before that. And and Knight Foundation gave me this opportunity to do something much larger. And so I was trying to create something that I think celebrated the city in a lot of ways and uh, and ch- changed people's minds about poetry, but also about Miami. I mean, you, you know as, as well as anyone that Miami gets a bad rap sometimes inside Miami, but so I've heard. often outside <laughs> Miami. And, uh, you know, and my experience in Miami was totally different from that. I really loved this place. And so I wanted to create a festival that celebrated that. And poetry was sort of the lens to do that. And this guy, uh, Tom Healy, who's one of our board members, 
uh, said, hey, well, why, why don't you just like bomb the city with poetry? <laughs> and so it's like, well, maybe that's not the best metaphor, but <laughs> <laughs> but but the idea is great. You but know? we can build a festival to figure out a better metaphor. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and so we, you know, we picked the name O Miami because the classic Odic address of the O, and then it's the beloved is Miami. And so we wanted the festival to itself be poetic, as rather instead of about poetry, it was poetry. If that makes sense. That that does make sense. It's very cool. So I mean, you have also got like a newspaper there. What's oh, going yeah, on yeah. with so, all this so stuff? This is, I mean, you guys brought in like the, the greatest <laughs> swag ever. We came yeah. prepared. So very this well is, this prepared. This is a poster that's also kind of within that library series. Um, so this is a. Uh, a student from Orchard Villa Elementary. As Amanda said, we, we do educational programs all year long in elementary schools. And so the kids write these amazing poems. And so we're always looking for excuses to put the poems out in the world. So this is, there's a series of posters that uh, the same designer, Noah Levy, did for the library where he's trying to bring a portion of the, of the poem to life. Um, so this one says, this song makes me feel like I am on a star. It makes me feel like I am a cloud. It makes me feel good. It makes me see the whole galaxy. And then there's a little record as well. I guess go on Twitter, I guess, and you can see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to post this on Twitter because, you know, I've always said that uh, that Twitter is, you know, pe- people go, well, what, what attracts you to Twitter? Like, why why is it that, you know, people read your tweets and, and not somebody else? And they go, well, you know, Twitter is actually the greatest forum for poetry that was ever created. Yeah. True. There's, I mean, there's so many poets now who have really big followings. Uh, without Twitter, I think people wouldn't know about. And some people might not even think of them primarily as poets because some of them are, are personalities, you know, as well. Um, you know, for instance, the, the poet um, uh, Saeed Jones, is like, you know, he's a BuzzFeed commentator, but he's a poet first. Uh, so, and Twitter has, I think, given him and, and a lot of other poets uh, a place to, to develop that audience, which is great. Well, you know, as as somebody who tweets uh, frequently, rather frequently, um, you know, I've noticed that, you know, the concepts of poetry, the the word shape, you know, where things are placed and how, you know, you read that and then maybe speak that it makes actually a very big difference. And, and that's something that um, is, you know, it's just I think it makes a difference in anybody's writing. Uh, you know, what do you guys think? Do, how does you know, reading poetry, listening to poetry, seeing it. How does that benefit the typical writer out there? I think personally, poetry is kind of underestimated. Uh, people look at it and think, oh, it's it's too complicated versus, you know, a story or a novel. But there's so much to unpack there. And so even if it's, you know, a short haiku or like, a long, you know, epic poem, there's something beneficial in being able to unpack the meaning behind it. And I feel, at least with me personally, every time you read a poem, you get a new meaning out of it, which I think is very beneficial to anyone who reads poetry, um, trying to find out a different meaning and um, seeking something different each time, especially as you go through different stages in your life too, you suddenly look at that poem and you're like, hmm, this means something different to me now. And so I think that adds added value to your life. I don't know, Scott, you're the poetry expert. So. No, no, but but the point is, is I, I don't think there should be poetry experts on some level. I mean, because, you know, a poem is always, who's reading it is is half the equation, you know, so. That's, that's true. And, you know, I, I think of another issue that, uh, comes up all the well I mean it's just something that I think about let's say uh, 
which is that most of the popular music we listen to is pretty much poetry mm-hmm. <laughs> set to music. Sure. I mean, that's what it is. You know, when you listen to like uh, Stone Temple Pilots or something or, you know, I mean, there's pop music that's very linear and straightforward, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is very poetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's so many uh, pop artists now who have a background in poetry, like Chance the Rapper started out as a poet. And Beyonce. Oh, really? I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, it, it's really an art form that, that ha- is kind of having a, a pop cultural moment, which is cool. But at the same time, I think you're right that it, it, it's a genre that whose, whose power is, I think, sort of quiet and understated and allows it to get overlooked. But, 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 but it does affect a lot of people more than you would realize. So, I mean, you guys have a lot of events coming up. Yeah. And we've got about three minutes left, I think. So <laughs> so let's go over what's going on this week because we're going to bring another guest on to sure. the program from the O Miami Poetry Festival next week. But what's going on this week for our listeners to go out there? And sure. So on Wednesday night, we have a reading um, with two poets, um, Nicole Seeley and Layla Benitez-James. It's at the Betsy Hotel. On Friday night, we have... The Betsy um, Hotel in Miami Beach. In Miami Beach. What yeah. time? Uh, Seven o'clock. Seven o'clock Wednesday night, the Betsy Hotel, Miami Beach, and uh, and then Friday night we have uh, an event called Poetry in Pajamas, which was created by a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, where uh, kids can come to an open mic dressed in their pajamas, and that's at the Miami Beach Botanical Garden on Friday night at six p.m. I, I heard about that one because I get notified every time Afro Beta has a, a show coming up. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, we're playing a lot of Afro Beta tonight on the I show. I did notice that. And uh, believe me, when I when I saw that last night, I was like, oh, why didn't we bring them on the show the next day? And I was like, well, you know, we'll have to make two with these guys. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> we're what no else? Afro Beta, that's for sure. What else is going on? So uh, the first Check Out a Poet event is actually going on this Wednesday night at the Doral Branch, and that's going to start at 6 p.m. So that's 6 p.m. at the Doral Branch of the Miami-Dade Public Library, which is located at... So Doral Branch, to find out the exact address, go to mdpls.org for all of our branch addresses. And then also on uh, April 7th, we have it going on at the main library along with our art exhibit with the Sunroom Education Program. So check out a poet, check out the art, and just check out poetry this month. So yeah. yeah. The 7th is a big one. Yeah, Yeah, it's a big one. Well, Scott and Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It's been a pleasure. And our audience can find out more at omiami.org, right? Yep. Right. And mdpls.org. <laughs> mdpls.org. That's the Miami-Dade County Public Library System's website. And omiami.org, right? Yep. Yep. Well, that is all the time we have for tonight's program. But I'd like to thank our guests And I'd like to thank JJR for coming on to the program tonight. We'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.